Let's go. What up, Oasis people? Oh, my. They, Dylan trained you. We had a practice moment. I told Dylan, you got to prep them so that when I say what up, they're ready to go. But we'll keep working anyways. So we're in a brand new series. Uh, when you saw that video, if you watched closely and you read the words, I don't really have to do a ton of explaining. That in a lot of ways, the beauty of the video is it told you what we're about to embark on. That this series, From Damascus to the World, is going to focus on the life of Paul. And Paul is this guy who, man, he changed the world. And we're going to look at how he did that. But before we get there, have you ever heard the idea of like the Mount Rushmore of something? Like the Mount Rushmore of, I mean, presidents, obviously. I don't know if they're the top four, but it feels like they're maybe in the top four. Then you got the Mount Rushmore of like basketball or like singers, and you put your top four people on there. If I had my Mount Rushmore of Christians, listen to this, Jesus Number one, like that feels like a no brainer. He's the George Washington where he gets like a little bit of like extra body work, you know, like that's Jesus on Mount Rushmore. And then next is I would say Peter. If you don't know Peter, come to the fall retreat. We're going to talk about Peter a little bit, but he is like Jesus's right hand man. He's incredible. He helps lead the church. He has a lot of this back history that's really interesting, but Peter is probably number two. Third, I really debated on it, but I settled on this. Tim Tebow, right? No, no, not Sadie Robertson Huff. Like, come on. she's probably number three. No, I don't know. I don't know. Tim Tebow wrote John 3.16. So that, that's pretty impressive. Uh, I don't know who number three is, but I know who number four is. It's Paul. Paul is the greatest missionary to ever live. He literally changed the world with his life. He makes it on the Mount Rushmore as one of the greatest Christians. And we're going to understand how he got there. Underneath this series, I want you to know that this is our vision series. And when we say that, it's because we're trying to articulate to you where we feel like God is asking us to go. That that's what vision means to us. That where are we trying to head as a ministry? We want to be strategic and intentional and prayerful and God-driven and people-focused. We want to go where God is asking us to go. And this series is going to give you a little sneak peek on what what, what we feel like God is asking us to do. So last year, if you were with us, we also did a vision series. We called it The One. And in The One, we focused on the exponential power of growth. Any math people out there? Yeah, that feels on brand, right? Like, there are some math people out there. If you don't know, focus back on, like, high school. Like, exponential growth works like this. So you start with one. Last year, I did this, did this with pumpkins, but unfortunately, Lewis didn't have pumpkins, so we're getting a little Reese's baddie up in here. But we've got one, and the one goes into what we would call the church. So it's in this area. And the way the one series worked and the way that we're going to continue to push into it this week is as we focus on the one, it's simply, it really is as simple as one person loves and cares for and invests in one other person. So what starts as one can become two. Super easy because that person went and found someone in their life and they invested in them. And two quickly becomes four and four becomes eight and eight becomes 16. And you see the jar is starting to fill up. But this 16 got here, not because one person went out and found 15. No, no, no. The, the 16 got here because every single person took a responsibility to find one, to love them, to care for them, and to invest in them. 16 eventually becomes 32. Now you need to stop checking my math because I don't really know what I'm doing after this. 32 becomes 64. And 64 becomes 128. And I ran out of Reese's because I did my math wrong. But you can see what happens here. We did not get to 128 simply by one person going out and living on mission. No, no, no. We got to 168, right? No, I did my math. What? 128. We got to 128 
Because every single person bought in on the mission of God, got involved, found one person, and they loved them. That this, I picked this number, 128, because I think it's really interesting. In here tonight, we maybe have, I don't know, someone's counting probably right now. Yeah, yeah, I won't make them shout it out. But there's something like 300 of you. Imagine half of you this week. Half of you went and loved the one. Just half, not all of you, because I realized that some of us were not quite ready to get involved in the mission of God, but half of us, I think all of us are, but half of us, maybe we do. And we leave this place and we start to invest in God's mission. We find that one person and we love them well. Could you realize that this room in two weeks could double if we got involved in God's mission like that? What would that do for the kingdom if we lived in the reality of the one? We're going to open up our Bibles tonight and we're going to study a passage of scripture that puts the one as a prominent theme. But the one that is picked might surprise you because his name is Paul. But if you know, Paul used to be Saul. And Saul, he was a super bad dude, like really, really, really bad guy. We're going to look at that for a second. And in this transformation, we see what becomes an epic story of bad guy to good guy. And before I even get there, I'm going to ruin a whole bunch of other stories for you. So the first of all bad guys to good guys, they're going to put it up on the screen. Darth Vader, right? Come on, let's let's, let's get Darth Vader up there. But Darth Vader is the perfect, there, perfect. Bad guy to good guy. Actually, he's good guy to bad guy to good guy. Like, it's, it's this ultimate story that comes, I mean, I think they steal it from Saul. If you flip to the next one, not, maybe you're not a, Harry, or a, a Star Wars fan, but you're a Harry Potter fan. I'm, I'm ruining stories tonight all over the place. Snape, Snape, bad guy, good guy, bad guy, good guy, bad guy, I think ends good guy. Like, it's kind of complicated, but it's this narrative. And the last one, I know you guys have all seen this one, and I don't care if you're OG or Jim Carrey or the new animated one, The Grinch. This is the epitome of bad guy to good guy story. Like if you don't know The Grinch, it kind of works like this. The Grinch hates Whoville. And get this, he hates Christmas. Like who hates Christmas? But in the middle of that, there's this experience. And I've got a point for you, and it's in the stories. There's an experience that's in the middle that changes everything in each and every single one of those. For the Grinch, he's up on his mountain, he's stolen all the gifts, he hears the singing, right? And his like, heart starts to grow and he's like in pain as his heart is growing and he's being transformed. And he becomes this character who goes out and he lives and he becomes the hero of the story. Bad guy to good guy. The same thing will happen to Saul today. Saul will go from bad guy to good guy. And while I don't think there's any Christmas carols involved, there is a moment in the middle where something incredible happens and everything changes. To find that, we're going to start by peeking into Acts 7. And I'm going to pray as you open up your Bibles there. Acts 7, Father, thank you tonight for your word. Thank you for your spirit. I pray that your spirit would move through your word and you would speak to your people through the story of Saul. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Acts 7 Verse 57. Here's where we're going to get our first introduction into who Saul is. That I'll set the scene for you. We find ourselves at the stoning of Stephen. And Stephen is this character who's being killed for his faith in Jesus. He's famous because he is the first of all Christian martyrs. That he is truly, simply being killed because he faithfully proclaimed the gospel. So in verse 57 it says this. At this, they, that's the Jewish leaders, they covered their ears and they were yelling at the top of their voices. They didn't want to hear the gospel news. They rushed at Stephen and they dragged him out of the city. They began to stone him. Meanwhile, 
the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Here's where we get our first mention of Saul in the whole Bible. It's this scene where he's standing on the perimeter watching all of these people murder someone in cold blood. But to him, it's not just a bunch of strangers. To him, Saul is watching his peers, his mentors, his teachers, his rabbis, his priests, the people he had dedicated his life to. These were his role models, and they're dragging this guy out of the city and pelting him with rocks. Stephen will die being beaten to death by stones. And as I hear that story, I start to wrestle with I don't know, I like to put myself in the text. I want to understand what the characters are feeling to maybe understand the decisions they make. So I'm trying to picture myself as Saul. Maybe you do this, and I'm sitting back thinking, man, that would be brutal. These people you respect, killing this guy in cold blood, just watching him get hit by rock after rock as you just stand there watching. And I make assumptions about how Saul feels in these formative moments of his lives. But Acts 8.1 quickly fixes my assumptions and tells us how he feels. It says Saul approved of their killing him. I wanted it to say something different. I wanted it to be Saul begrudgingly let them. I wanted it to be Saul stood back and he watched with a downtrodden heart as this person died. I wanted it to be he just relented and and they were too strong and they overcame him and and they murdered him. But no, it says Saul approved of the killing of Stephen. He stood there and he watched I went to all these different Bible translations this week and I read this verse, chapter eight, verse one, over and over and over again because I wanted it to say something different. But what it said is Saul approved. It says Saul celebrated. It says Saul congratulated. The one that struck me, it was Saul overwhelmingly supported the murder of Stephen. At the start of persecution, Saul, Saul stood by and he watched with glee. Stephen's death would go on to be the match that ignites the persecution against Christians in this time. We'll see that as we keep reading in chapter 8. It says, On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen, and they mourned him deeply. But, But Saul, he began to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragged people, both men and women, and put them in prison. Right here, the text is showing us that at the height of persecution, Saul is leading the movement. He just started as this character who was passively in the background, just watching from afar. He approved, but he had no role to play. The text quickly jumps into this place where he is now leading this movement of persecution against the Christians. There's something that's changed in Saul here. The text says he was destroying the church, and that was his goal. We can sit back and we can look at it and we can be disgusted at the persecution that happened against the church. But for Saul, he dedicated his life to Judaism. Everything he knew and everything he'd lived was to be Jewish. He thought Jesus and his followers were just another false sect of teachers. He thought they were just false false people trying to lead people astray. He was passionate that they were wrong. And so he went after them. In the same way the Jewish people had went after other false prophets in the past. He was trying to take them out. And he was having some success in doing it. Saul was going from home to home, kicking down doors, dragging people out, and putting them in prison. Grandparents were being dragged from their homes, handcuffed in the streets, and led to prison for faith in Jesus. Parents were being dragged away from children 
as they screamed and they cried because they didn't know what was going on, but their parents had this faith in Jesus and that's all they knew and this Saul guy was gonna put them in prison for it. Fathers, wives, husbands, brothers, sisters, families destroyed at the hands of Saul. The persecution became so intense that they would actually flee their homes, that this church in Jerusalem would start to disband and they'd start to go to all the surrounding places. But little did Saul know that as the people scattered, the gospel spread. That as they went, they didn't just leave this Jesus guy back in Jerusalem. No, they took the knowledge that they had, the hope that they had in Jesus, and they brought it to new communities and new places and new people. And he didn't know it, nor if he did, could he have stopped it. But his persecution was being used by God for good. That the persecution that Saul was ushering, that that suffering of the church, it spread the gospel. As people left, they fled. They feared for their lives. And as they did so, they brought the gospel with them. He thought he was stamping out the fire of the church. He thought if he could persecute them, kill enough people, jail enough people, that the Jesus movement would just fizzle out. Little did he know that what he was trying to do to stamp it out actually stoked it. It grew like a wildfire and spread everywhere across the region. And he was not okay with that, that the church is growing. And it's that mindset that we take now into Acts 9. Acts 9, verse 1 through 2, it says, Meanwhile, there's the context. Meanwhile, while the church is growing, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that's just Christians, if he found anybody who was a Christian there, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Again, in my sermon prep process, I like to sit back and just, just sit in the text. Like, not on it. That would be really weird. Some of you are picturing me, like, sitting in a classroom on my Bible. No, that's not what happens. Like, I just like to sit with the text, just really wrestle with it. And I could not get myself to come away from the two words, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats. As you flip through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you'll see that breath is a very powerful metaphor. That breath actually rep represents life in the scriptures. Genesis 2.7, God formed Adam from dust. But as he formed him, he's not yet alive. He becomes alive when God breathes into him. That breath is life. Breath is power. John 20, 22, Jesus has resurrected from the grave and he comes to this disbanded group of, of apostles who don't yet know exactly what they're trying to do. And as he comes to them, it says he breathed on them. And with that, they received the Holy Spirit, the power of God to go and to live the mission of God. Breath is so important in the text over and over. And Luke, the author of Acts, is telling us that Saul was breathing out murderous threats. He's showing us just how corrupt Saul was. That Saul had a heart of persecution. Matthew 15, 18. Jesus will speak and he will tell us that out of the mouth, the heart speaks. That what you say reflects what's in your heart. That's what Luke is trying to teach us here. Uh, in, in my life, one of the things I've struggled with, wrestled with, felt a lot of conviction about is my complaining. I'm a natural pessimist and complainer. I don't know if anybody's out there. It's like, I'll wake up and find something wrong with the day. <laughs> and I, I, I just have, I've struggled with complaining my whole life. My high school buddies used to razz me about it all the time. They always knew I was good for a good complaint. But as the Lord convicted me, I saw that those weren't just words that came from nothing. 
No, it came from a heart inside of me that was corroded and corrupted and pessimistic. A heart that, that didn't have hope in Jesus. A heart that didn't have joy in Jesus. A heart that wasn't transformed by Jesus. And my mouth reflected it. You find yourself maybe in, in, in workplaces or classrooms, sitting alongside coworkers, or maybe it's your roommate situation where there's that person who's mean. And what they say is mean and what they, and what they do is mean. And you think, wow, how could, how could they do that? But when you trace back words, it links to the heart. That they come from a heart that's bitter, that's broken, that's hurt. Maybe you're someone or you know someone who struggles with crude joking. Like we think a joke here and there is, is kind of funny and, and I can push the line and toe the line like good comedy really toes the line. But when you, when you speak crude joking, when you speak things that are inappropriate, things that are wrong, things that God would not approve of, those aren't just words. It shows what's in your heart. And so Luke is telling us in the text, Saul was breathing out murderous threats. That his very life was filled with hate. That his threats show his heart. His very presence, his being, his breath, Saul's whole life was about persecuting the church. That deep inside of him there was this anger at what they were doing and the movement that was growing. As he stood there and he watched Stephen be stoned, it was burning. As he led the movement and he dragged people out of their houses, it was growing. And this same anger will send Saul on, on mission to persecute Christians to Damascus. Christians are fleeing all over the place, trying to get away from Saul, and he, he's not okay with that. He wants to stamp out this movement. He wants them to stop leading people astray. So he goes to the high priest and he demands this, this letter to approve his willingness to go to Damascus to hopefully capture Christians and parade them back to Jerusalem as trophies. That's what he's trying to do here. And when he's on his way, he has a plan. But his plan is interrupted and it's in the middle of that where he's about to go from good guy to bad guy. Or, oh, he goes from bad guy to good guy. Something incredible happens. Acts 9, verse 3. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He replied, now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they didn't see anyone. And so Saul got up from the ground and when he opened his eyes, he couldn't see anything. So they led him by the hand into Damascus and for three days he was blind and he did not eat or drink anything. With that text in mind, I want to take us back to the one. This idea of how can we love and care for one person and invest in the kingdom that way. We've seen just how evil and corrupt Saul is. I mean, his heart, his life, his very being, everything about him was broken. But here we have a story where Jesus pursued Saul as the one. Saul had these plans. He was on the road. He was on a journey. He was actually going there to jail and possibly murder more Christians. But Jesus had different plans. And all of it starts with a flash. That flash knocks Saul off of his horse. And as he's falling and he's confused and he doesn't know what's going on, Jesus speaks and he asks the question, why are you persecuting me? Which is kind of an interesting question. It would have been really confusing for Saul and maybe it's confusing for you because Saul is persecuting the church. That Saul knew who Jesus was, like he, he had heard about him, he knew his prominence, he just didn't believe in the things that he taught. 
He just didn't actually think Jesus was the Messiah. Because of that, he thought Jesus was still dead. So when he asked the question, why are you persecuting me? He doesn't understand. Saul is persecuting the church. But if you were to flip ahead in your Bible a little bit to Colossians 1.18, you would learn that Christ is the head of the church and the church is his body. So Jesus deeply cares about the condition of the church, which is his body. We care about our bodies. Jesus cares about his bodies. He doesn't ask, why are you persecuting them? It's not, why are you persecuting the church? It's not even, why are you persecuting my church? It's, why are you persecuting me? Jesus feels the pain of his people. I mean, that'll preach tonight. What you're walking through, what you're struggling with, what you're hurting with, the situations you've gone through, Jesus feels the pain of his people. That if we are being persecuted, rejected, mistreated, or hurt, Jesus isn't okay with that. And it's in Saul's confusion as he's trying to pick himself up off the ground. He asks who he is. Jesus brings greater clarity and he just says, I am Jesus. That's who you're persecuting. This would have been shocking to Saul. Saul thought Jesus was dead. Saul's whole mission, his whole life, the last years of his persecuting the church is all focused on this idea of trying to stamp out this name of Jesus. And here he is standing in front of him fully alive. That's shocking. It's crazy. As he stands there fully alive, Saul's trying to process it all, and Jesus just sends him. He says, go into the city. And this is the first of many instances where Jesus will send Saul on mission. It looks like this in verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord told him, go into the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he's actually come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This is the man I have chosen as my instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and to their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house, and as he entered it, he placed his hands on Saul, and he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road, he sent me here to come to you, so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell off of Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. At this point, we now have a saved Saul. Saul, who has believed in Jesus who has understood the experience he just went through, who has processed it and had this Ananias guy walk alongside him to explain it. Jesus didn't just leave Saul blind in the countryside. No, he pursued him. But as he pursued him, he now sends Ananias to do it. Ananias now pursues Saul as the one. I love that. What Jesus began personally, he showed up right in front of Saul. He blinded him, knocked him off the horse and had this conversation. But what he started, he sent his church, his people, his body to continue. Does this sound familiar? It is for me in my life. I vividly remember having this experience where I heard someone teaching at an FCA event. And to me, it was crazy because as I sat there and I listened to him, to this guy, Jesus wasn't just some theological concept. It wasn't just some name he ascribed to. It wasn't just some name he grew up with. No, when this guy taught, 
Jesus was real to him. He walked with this guy. He talked with this guy. He knew this guy, Jesus. And I sat there and I listened and, and I met the Lord in that message. And I went home and I started to write down all my questions. I was like, why do dinosaurs, where, where did they go? And I was like, what happens to all these people when they die in this way? Like I was, I, was, I was scrolling. I walked into a pastor's office and they were like, we spent three hours and I'm sure it was the worst three hours of his life. But I was just walking through all these questions and the spirit was doing something in me. But the Lord didn't just leave me there. He met me in a message. He moved in my heart. The spirit came and it was doing something. But yet he sent his church to walk alongside me. More specifically, he sent this guy named Tyler. That Tyler, to him, I was the one. That he had prayed and he had processed and he had seen me and he, he served me. He loved me. He challenged me. He led me. He came alongside me. He wanted me to know Jesus and he was willing to take his time and his energy to do it. And Tyler, he, did, he didn't know the plans that God had for me. To be honest, I think he's still kind of shocked that I stand in front of all of you and preach God's word. He knew me pre-Jesus. That guy's like, oh my gosh, like I can't believe that guy is preaching. But as he wrestled with that, I think he had the same tendencies as Ananias. Because did you notice, as Jesus sends Ananias, Ananias argues first. If I can say it in the Brennan translation, Ananias is thinking, I don't know about this, Jesus. <laughs> Ugh. Jesus, do you know which Saul you're talking about? Because there might be a different Saul. I'd love to go to a different Saul, but Saul from Tarsus? Ooh, Saul from Tarsus, he has a past. Ooh, he's got some history. He's done some things. He's messed up a lot. Are you sure that's the Saul? I mean, I, I trust you, but I'm just trying to make sure. Like, are, are you sure? Because I actually heard not only does he have a past, but he has a future. And he has a present plan. And he's trying to persecute me, Jesus. You're sending me into harm's way. You're risking my reputation, my status, my success, my health. Are you, are you sure, Jesus? And Jesus just responds, go. He affirms that this is the man. He says the plans that he has for this man. And they, they honestly, they blow Ananias' mind. It's, it's, it's crazy. Whether it's my experience with Tyler or Ananias' experience with Saul, we have a couple of examples of guys, people who were just willing to be faithful. God asked, they went. And as Ananias goes, he prays for Saul. And through Ananias' faithfulness, Saul not only is healed, but he's also filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to hear this, this pretty clearly, because it can be kind of confusing. You can't be Jesus to someone. It is not our responsibility to save. Jesus is the high priest. He's the one true king. He is the one that saves. You can't be Jesus, but you can be Ananias. Someone who will partner with Jesus on mission as he's doing a work in someone's life. We will come alongside that and we will try to equip the saints. We'll try to help people encounter grace. We will walk with them as they grow, grow in grace. We will be people who give grace. You can be Ananias. To be honest, you need to be. I'll ask you this question. What would it look like for you to be Ananias to someone? To just be there as they learn to follow Jesus. Jesus had plans for Saul. He didn't just want to save Saul. He wanted to strengthen and send Saul. Saul has the spirit now. 
He's been changed, and he is consistently being changed. And as he's filled with the Spirit, he begins to tell other people about Jesus. But catch this, Saul doesn't yet have perfect theology. He doesn't have answers to all of his questions. Right, as I talk to people, it's this tendency that one of the biggest fears when it comes to evangelism or telling people about Jesus is that we'll get stuck in some conversation where we don't have the answers. But Saul has known Jesus as his Lord and Savior for like three days. And now he's in the streets, in the synagogues, reasoning and arguing and, and uh, arguing is a bad word, reasoning and, and, and telling people about Jesus. Because he knows two things. He knows Jesus is the Son of God. He also knows Jesus has risen from the dead. And that was enough. That was enough. He could go into Damascus and he could start to tell people about Jesus. But so often we have this fear. What if I don't know? But what if we had confidence and because we know the one who has sent us and the one who goes with us? That we can step into these. And I talked to a guy a couple of weeks ago. He was having a conversation. He told someone about Jesus and they turned to him and they said, but what's your blood type? I only get along with certain types of blood. And he was like, I don't know what to do with that. Nobody knows what to do with that. You know, like that's wild. But you can find yourself in some crystal conversation or some horoscope conversation or some, some crazy kind of ideology, some crazy questions. And you're like, I don't know what to do with that, Pastor. And as you find yourself there, do you know Jesus is the son of God? And do you know he is risen from the grave? You know enough to tell people about Jesus. As he goes and he's preaching, he quickly finds opposition. And when he finds that opposition, he has to flee. And he runs back to Jerusalem, the place where he used to persecute Christians. It's there where we're going to look at one last interaction. Acts 9, verse 26. When Saul came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. Which, come on, isn't that super reasonable? This Saul guy was just here a couple of weeks ago, kicking down doors with an army behind him, dragging people out and throwing them in prison. That same guy, a couple of weeks later, is knocking on your door with a smile. <laughs> Do you open it? <laughs> I'm like, come on, let's be real here. They're a little nervous. They're like, has he changed? I mean, he says he's a believer, but is he truly? I mean, has he really met with Jesus? Does he really know what he's doing? Can I trust this guy? Because if they make the mistake and they open the door, they could be the next person ending up like Stephen, stoned in the out, outside courtyards. Can they trust this guy? And it's in that confusion, Jesus sends one more person to help Saul. Verse 27. But Barnabas took him and he brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. Lastly, Barnabas pursued Saul as the one. Jesus started it. Ananias played his part. Now here's Barnabas being called to love and to care for Saul. Here's a guy in Saul who desperately knows, who, he knows Jesus, he longs for Jesus, but he finds himself on the out. They won't let him in. Nobody will believe him. And Barnabas in that space becomes an ally and an advocate for Saul. When nobody else would believe him, Saul did, or Barnabas did. When nobody would invite Saul in, Barnabas did. When nobody would affirm Saul, Barnabas did. What could it look like for you to be Barnabas for someone? To be an ally, to be an advocate for someone in need, someone who's on the out who needs to be invited in. When Barnabas invited Saul in, it put the exclamation point on Saul's conversion, but not only that, on Saul's calling. 
Saul will later go on and he'll have his name changed and he'll become Paul. It's kind of where we started this. And Paul, I don't know if you knew this, but he will go and he will do incredible things. That if you were to open your Bible, the New Testament has 27 books. 13 of those, about half, are written by Paul. In the ancient day, Paul traveled around as a missionary. He planted 14 churches. Lastly, there are seven continents in the world, right? Fact check, good, okay. And every single one of those now has people who who have reached there with the gospel. Not at this time. Paul was one of the people, if not the person, who brought the gospel to two continents, Asia and Europe. Two continents, not two states, not two people groups, two continents. Paul did that. He had a huge impact, and we're going to look at that more next week. But it all started here. The team can come up. All of this came through three people. Jesus, Ananias, and Barnabas, who saw Saul as their one. They invited him in. They challenged him. They encouraged him. They prayed for him. They taught him. They rebuked him. They loved him. And Saul, he might not become Paul if it's not for these three. And as we look at our own lives, there are people in your life who God has sent you to have an impact on. They need you to be faithful. They need you to come and to seek them as the one. And it might be scary like it was for Ananias. He feared for his life. It might feel like you're going to go against the opinions of people like you did, like Barnabas did. When everybody else says one thing, God is asking you to do another. And that is a scary place to be. But I'm praying that we have faith to go and to live and to find the one. Before we leave here tonight, actually, right now as I finish this, we're going to give you two to three minutes of space, which for some is way too long and for others of you it's not nearly long enough. But the band is just going to play a little bit and we're going to ask you to pray. Pray and they're going to put two questions up on the screen. Who is God calling you to? Who might God be calling you to invite in? These two questions, I feel like God has distinct answers for us tonight. Maybe on your way in, I hope, if you didn't, please grab one on your way out. You got a connection card. These aren't just for new time guests. Those connection cards are one of my favorite ways to be able to pray for you as people. That as your pastor, I want to know you all. I, I, so I'm a mega extrovert. I would love to hang out with all of you, but I can't. But I can, and I promise I will, sit in that chapel on Monday afternoons and pray for every single card you turn into the basket. And my promise this week, alongside of our leadership team, is if you will take that card, and at the bottom it says, a person to pray for. If you will write the name of the one that God is asking you to go and to invest in, we would love to pray with you this week. So if you didn't get one on the way in, make sure to grab one on the way out. Just drop them in the bus buckets. Take this time, pray. Who might God be calling you to? Who is on the out that you need to invite in? Get a name, write it down, and go this week and love that person. I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna give you space to pray. So Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Saul. I mean, there is this man who is so broken. And some of us tonight, God, maybe we're feeling like Saul that we feel distant from you, we feel far from you, we feel broken ourselves, we just don't, we don't know how, how to live life, we find ourselves confused. 
God, I pray that you would meet them in a powerful way, that you were willing to knock Saul off of his horse, to blind him for a period of time so that you could grip his heart. And tonight, God, I just pray that you would do whatever it needs, whatever, whatever is necessary to grip people's hearts. Otherwise, God, I just pray that we would look at Ananias and Barnabas and we would see their faith and we would see their willingness. When it was scary or it wasn't popular, we, they went. And God, I pray we would take that posture, that we would be people who right now you speak to us the divine names, that I don't want gener generalizations in this space, God. I feel like by your spirit, you wanna provide a name for each and every person in this space to write on a card and to pursue this week. God, would you give us pictures of faces and names? Maybe it's classmates or coworkers, family members, friends, roommates. I, I don't know what it is, God, but would you give us those names? And would you send us as your people by the power of your spirit to invest in your kingdom? And would you pay just this exponential growth here, God? Not because we care about Oasis, but because we care about the kingdom of God. We care about people knowing to come and to know Jesus. We care about those who are lost, those who are without hope, that they would come and be found and would find hope. That those who are, are bound to death would be raised to life in Jesus Christ. And so we pray that tonight. And we ask that you would do what only you can do. And we pray that in Jesus' name.